south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 248, covering the week of February 8th through February 12th, 2021. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, like our Facebook page, and subscribe to our YouTube page. You can find all those social media accounts at our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org. While you're there, give us an email address. We'll give you a free ebook exploring the Southern tradition. It's a great book, 20 essays in defense of the Southern tradition by 20 Abbeville Institute scholars. And it's yours free of charge just for giving us an email address. When you give us that email address, you will get our daily dose of Dixie Monday through Friday. It's a great way for us to keep up with you and keep in touch with you as well so that we can let you know about the cool things going on at the Institute. And of course, one of those things are our Zoom conferences, which we're now doing monthly. We have one coming up at the end of the month with Marshall DeRosa. This is going to be a fantastic conference. Uh, Marshall DeRosa is an expert on the Confederate Constitution. It's sold out. It's sold out in about 24 hours. But if you're on the email list, you're going to know about it. And you're going to be able to jump on those things and catch them live. Now, if you don't get a chance to catch it live, you can go to abbevilleacademy.org, abbevilleacademy.org, after the conference, and we'll have it there available for purchase as well. So we've got our first two conferences up at Abbeville Academy. We've got the conference that we had with Don Livingston, Phil Lee, and Samuel Mitchum. And we also have the one that we did in, that was in December. We have the one we did in January with Tom DiLorenzo on Abraham Lincoln, the problem with Lincoln. So... Both of those are up. We're going to have this other one up very shortly after we do it. In fact, probably the next day, you can go ahead and purchase that. But um, if you want to catch it live, you want to be on the email list. And of course, we also let you know about any in-person conferences we have coming up and all kinds of other cool things going on. We put out videos and do all the things that we're doing. That said, we do exist on your generous contributions alone. So if you like what we do, if you like the Institute, if you like our podcast, our website, all the things we do, consider a tax-deductible donation to the Institute. Just click on that support tab at ivyvilleinstitute.org. And please share our material out on social media. Download our free mobile application. Do everything you can to help spread the word and let people know you like the Abbeville Institute and you like our mission to explore what is true and valuable in the Southern tradition. It is essential in this modern mess that we're in today to have the Southern tradition as a counterweight. And let's talk about that. We had a lot of great pieces this week. Uh, three of them focused more on some political issues, and then two were cultural. And I say political issues because, look, when you look at what's happening in Washington, D.C., when you look at what's happening at your states, across the United States, wherever you are, I mean, the Southern tradition is applicable to any state in the United States. Because in, at, in reality, at its core, it's the Jeffersonian tradition, which there were a lot of great Jeffersonians in the North all the way through American history. I mean, but because Jefferson is Southern, this is why we often use Jefferson as the symbol of the Institute, because Jefferson was a byproduct of Virginia. There's no Jefferson without Virginia. I mean, there's no Jefferson without the culture of Virginia. You have to have it. Now, it doesn't mean we don't think that other Southerners had some valuable things to say about modern American life, or at least American life in general, government, American government and society. We, we do. And it doesn't mean any of these people were perfect, because none of them are. None of them are perfect. None of them say everything correct, get everything right. I mean, it's just, that's impossible. 
But this is where the Southern, when we say we're going to explore what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition, this is where we can take things from people that are in the Southern tradition. You may not like everything they say, but you can take things that would be applicable to today and apply them again to current situations. So this is when we talk about the agrarians, for example. What was their critique of industrial capitalism that's still valuable today? What about Jefferson and John Taylor? What did they say about the fusion of finance, banking, and government that's still valuable today? What did Calhoun and, of course, Jefferson and John Taylor and John Randolph of Roanoke, what did they have to say about central power that's still relevant today? What do people like Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee and David Crockett and Zachary Taylor and Winfield Scott and, of course, into the 20th century, you have a number of you know, great Southerners, Audie Murphy, for example. What do these people have to say, you know, Sergeant York, Alvin York, what do these people have to show us about heroism? Chesty Puller, I mean, these are important Americans. What did Southerners like William Faulkner and uh, William Gilmore Sims, what did they have to say about Southern literature? And we could go down the line. This is why we have so many of these things in our on our website so many different articles about these people this is why we've talked about them in our conferences if you download our free mobile app you get all of our conference lectures free of charge and we've lectured on a lot of these things over and over again i mean with scholars from all over the world to come in and talk about these separate issues so what do these people have to say about modern society that is still relevant Eudora Welty. I mean, you can you could go down the line with Southerners that have had a prescient critique of modern American society, even before it got here. Southern comedians like Will Rogers and others. I mean, this is important. So uh, when we when we publish material like we did this week, one we'll start with with the uh, Ronald Kennedy, James Ronald Kennedy article, a fig for the Constitution. It's it's discussing John Randolph of Roanoke's very famous phrase that look, the Constitution is powerless. This is something that's important to understand, and I talk a lot about the Constitution in my own podcast, the, the Brian McClanahan Show. If you're not catching that, just go ahead and look it up. And I I have a you know, in my own academy, and I have a new class out on the Constitution there, and I sent out an email, and I said, look, this is the best pro-Constitution speech of, of this person's, James Wilson of Pennsylvania. Look, he's irredeemable, except for this particular speech, or a couple of speeches, in fact, in favor of the Constitution. And somebody emailed me back and said, oh my gosh, I mean, how, I, I hate the Constitution. The Constitution I mean, went through this whole diatribe about the Constitution, how awful it is. And look, I agree, the the Opponents of the document were right about what would happen, but that's not the important thing to understand. The important thing to understand is how the Constitution was argued it would be interpreted by those who were in favor of it. That's the real Constitution. Now, we don't follow that Constitution. There's no, I mean, we don't do any of that anymore. The general government is so far beyond that, it's it's irredeemable. Unless the states become an important part of the process, which they have the powers to do it, and they start to resist unconstitutional and oppressive federal power. And sometimes the states do this. Unfortunately, it typically doesn't, it doesn't happen very often, uh, and it depends on the issue. Sometimes the progressives, the left, will do it. Sometimes the conservatives or the right will do it. And 
I mean, they're, maybe they're not, they're not very conservative, or but who knows? But sometimes you have it coming from both sides. Again, depends on the issue. But the point of this piece, and I think uh, Mr. Kennedy does a nice job here in pointing out that without an enforcement mechanism, the Tenth Amendment is powerless. This is something that people talked about. Look, Calhoun, as he, as he mentions, Calhoun was, was certainly concerned about this as he began writing some of his more important political treatises at the end of his life. And he saw the future. He saw that what was going to happen, if you ever read his disquisition on government, he understood what was going to happen, of course, is that eventually you would get to a point where the Constitution was only relevant to the, to the side out of power, that it was irrelevant once you were in power. Because once you're in power, you don't want the restraints that the Constitution supposedly places on the general government. You don't want those at all. What you want is the ability to do whatever you want while you're in office. And we're seeing that right now with the Biden administration. The Democrats for four years talked about the Constitution, how important it was, and they're going to use it to, to affect what Trump is doing. Biden gets into office, and of course they throw that all out, out the window. And now the Republicans, who for four years really didn't care if Donald Trump abused the Constitution at all, now they're very, oh, we're constitutional scholars, we believe in fiscal restraint, we believe in all these things. Now they're, they're pushing that particular message. This is what Calhoun said would happen. You want to look at someone who understood the problems of American government. This is why he came up with his concurrent majority. He said, look, there's no real majority right now. What you have is abuse. So if you really want a real majority that doesn't abuse the minority, because he was concerned about that. And at times, the left is concerned about the minority. At times, the right is concerned about the minority. Right now, the deplorables are theoretically the minority in the American collective, if you want to say there is any such thing. Of course, John Taylor of Caroline said there is no such thing as that. It's like utopia for utopians. It doesn't exist. But if there is some type of an American people, well, certainly the side that voted for Trump is in the minority, the deplorables. There's over 70 million of them out there, but still they're, minor they're the minority, and the majority is maybe in the around 80 million. So what's happening is you've got a very slim majority abusing the minority. They're enforcing their vision of America, which... Frankly, if you look at what 80 million people are, I mean, think about that. There's 320 million people. And if there's 80 million people or so that voted for Joe Biden, and that was, in some cases, 100% voter participation, okay? That means that even with that, that's only about 25% of the population, right? 25% of the population of the United States is now determining what the other 75% have to do. Now, it doesn't mean that there's group in that other 75%. Maybe they didn't vote. Maybe they're too young or whatever it is. Maybe whatever the reason that they didn't vote or participate, maybe they agree with that 25%. But maybe a good portion of them don't agree with that 25%. We know another 25% or though doesn't. So we've got 50% of the population that's in the middle, theoretically, and they're being abused by 25%. Now, we could make the case the other way, but what Calhoun was saying is that without something like the concurrent majority, where that 25% that's still out there has a say in what happens. They can essentially veto anything that's going to damage them. Well, wouldn't that work for just about any minority group? 
let's say the Republicans are in power and they pass some kind of legislation that would damage the progressive left. Well, they could get rid of it. But see, what Calhoun was doing then is saying we have to come up with a real majority, something that the majority of the American public, without a veto, is going to support, that has the vast majority of the support of the people. And what's going to happen with that? You see, there's a reason why neither the left nor the right really want something like this. Why? Because you would have very little going on in the central authority. In fact, what would happen is most of this would then devolve to the states. The central authority would become uh, irrelevant except in terms of war, peace, and trade. A free trade zone in the Union, which was what it was designed to be. Not some type of regulatory monstrosity where if you sell a glass of lemonade, you should pay a federal tax on it. I mean, you know, this is... (laughs) That's where the founders would have said, no, 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 no. That, that's not regulating commerce. But this is how it's been interpreted by the courts and others. So, I mean, you, you have an issue here of abusive power. And so Kennedy's article, which again is great, he gets into this. He says, look, I mean, there's no enforcement mechanism. When the general government passes something that's unconstitutional, we shouldn't just say, well, we got to let the Supreme Court decide on this. No. There should be a state check on the entire system. The people of the United States, the people of the states in general, should be able to check these things. It's going to harm them. I mean, what is, if you look at a, a concurrent issue like Biden's, uh, you know, canceling of the Keystone Pipeline, well, does that not affect states? The only reason the general government would have any role in this, theoretically, is because the pipeline goes across state lines. But there should be no general government control of this thing because it's coming from Canada, so it has to go across an international border. There should be no control, federal control if it's, if it's in state land or you know these kind of things. Now, I mean, if the general government owns the land, okay. But how much land should they actually own anyways? That's another question. You look at how much land they own in the West. I mean, it's, they own huge parts of the state of Idaho, for example. I mean, so where is the constitutionality of just about any of this stuff? This is where the states could get involved, and this is where, you know, Randolph said there's just a fig for the con- It doesn't mean anything. The Constitution is not a shield. It's a fig leaf. It doesn't really protect anything. It's nothing. And so I really like this particular piece because I think he, uh, Kennedy does it. And for, first of all, if you've never read any of the Kennedy's books, they've got a new volume, new edition of The South was right out through Shotwell Publishing, which is fantastic. They added it, um, added it, uh, added to it, updated it. It's a great book. It's one of those books that, and I've mentioned it on this podcast before, that can really change your mind about things in terms of the South. And, uh, I mean, they have done such a yeoman's service to the South by publishing that book when they did in the early 90s. I mean, people don't realize that book now has been out since the early 90s. And, uh, I mean, it's, it's 30 years old. And that's pretty, pretty amazing uh, that that book is now 30 years old. And, again, the service that the Kennedys did for the South and for the United States, I think. And I remember when I received that book, and, and um, it was a gift. I had one of their other books first, and I had Why Not Freedom before I had that one. And I received it as a gift. And uh, the people that I was around, I mean, oh, what do you what do you like this book for? He's got this big Confederate battle flag on it, and 
I said, well, I'm interested in what they had to say about things. I read Why Not Freedom. I thought, yeah, I mean, this is pretty, I mean, I'm, I'm here, this kind of young conservative. I'm looking at things, and they're talking about state powers, and they're looking at nullification. They're talking about potential secession. Now the left is talking about secession. Still, they're still talking about it, which is amazing, because in the 90s, nobody was talking about that. And I wanted to read their other book, you know, that they had at the time on the South, and understand, trying to understand this Southern tradition thing. And I hadn't really, at that point in my life, I hadn't been exposed to uh, some of the other people that eventually I was exposed to. And that's why the Abbey Valley Institute is great, because we can reach young people, and you can get this podcast, and you can hear about some of these things, and you can go out and read them for yourself and see if you think, well, yeah, this has something to it, or nah, this is a bunch of hogwash. I don't want to, th- this doesn't make any sense to me. But we're presenting the information for people to consume and, and decide for themselves. And that's great. And we get emails all the time. Hey, look, I'm not a Southerner, but I love your stuff. Or uh, I'm, I'm living in this country overseas, and man, I am just, or I'm from some country overseas, and this is just speaking to me because we're doing these things. And we're talking about people all over the world that are interested in the Southern tradition and continents all over the world. See, the Southern tradition is timeless. It's timeless for people dealing with oppressive central regimes. It doesn't matter what regime you're talking about, whether it's in Asia or Africa or Europe or South America. It doesn't matter. The Southern tradition offers a counterweight to that. And that's why it's so important. And it's not just about politics. It's about finding people in place, keeping traditions alive in the face of an oppressive central authority that's trying to eradicate those things, which we call cultural Marxism. We look at it as woke, you know, leftism today, or social justice, or cancel culture. It's got all kinds of names. But the idea is to eliminate any cultural opposition to your perceived unitary society. And let, so it's, it's cultural imperialism from the one side on the other. This side is trying to exist. But if you say, and this is where the piece gets into this independent investigation at VMI, if you say that Stonewall Jackson is uh, a racist, and so because he's a racist, you can't have him on the campus any longer, as Forrest Marion points out, if you're looking for racism, you're going to find it because it's there. I mean, uh, in all kinds of ways. So if if your goal is to find it, you're going to find it even if it's not there, I should say. Even if it's not there, you're going to find it. Even, you know, even if it's not there you will find something that you want to find. This is what the Marxists do all the time. Even if there's no evidence of something, they're still going to find it. Because they'll just say, well, this little thing is is it. So uh, VMI and getting rid of Jackson and trying to take apart the southern traditional base of VMI. And, of course, as Marion points out, I mean, this is... VMI should have been the last bastion. This should have been it. And he says at the end of the piece, look, if you think this isn't going to come for you, it is. Because this is the whole point of social justice woke leftism, which is now taking over across the world. I mean, it's the idea is to have a unitary, unitary assimilation. And, and uh, for people that are science fiction fans, the best example of this, if you've ever watched Star Trek, which has its own problems, but they have this group called the Borg. And I find Star Trek so funny in this way because Star Trek is actually a leftist. You know, Gene Rottenberry was, you know, kind of a leftist. I mean, he was. 
but and you get the Federation of Planets and this one. But the Borg, he's very concerned about diversity in this empire, and the Borg are the assimilators, and so they have to go in the Borg are the problem. But what we're looking at now on the progressive left, they are the Borg. They're the ones that are trying to assimilate everything. You will be assimilated. You will be if you don't assimilate, you'll be canceled. You'll be eradicated. If you don't assimilate, you're gone. Now, if you look at again all the peoples and everything, this is diversity. If this idea of diversity, then it's supposed to embrace all cultures and all peoples and all views, and tolerant of all. But it's not really tolerant. The progressive left or the Borg, and that's the problem when you look at VMI. I mean, VMI should be able to exist on its own, and it has its own traditions and own institutions. And if you go there, you know those things. You know it going in. This is what we have at VMI. So why even choose to go there? It's just like the people that go to Washington and Lee University, and then they want to take Lee out of the name. Why? Why did you even attend that school? Go somewhere else. There's other schools you could go to. Why attend that one? Just so you can go in and try to complain about it. Or if you go to Clemson University... And you want to take John C. Calhoun off of everything. Or even Clemson itself. I mean, look, Clemson should not be up there. The name Clemson. But you want to take all that down. You know when you attend that institution what it is. You know who founded it. You know who his father-in-law was. You know all this stuff. Well, maybe you don't. Maybe you're that stupid. And I wouldn't put it past most Americans to be that clueless about things. So don't attend that institution. You have choices. And those are the traditions and things that are there. And it doesn't mean you can't have addition. You can't add to that. And I think this is the sad thing about it. Instead of adding to it, you want to take it away. You go to University of Virginia, you know who founded that school, Thomas Jefferson. Why would you try to cancel Thomas Jefferson, the man that founded the school that you're going to, if you're at University of Virginia? But that's what you want to do. This is what woke assimilators, the Borg, want to do. And it's sad, more than anything else. It's sad. It shows a corruption of character and a corruption of society. And I think that's what we're really facing more than anything else, which is why the Southern tradition matters, because the Southern tradition was always about preservation of people and place and tradition and localism. And not just about, you know, people say, well, yeah, because they want to abuse other people. That's just garbage. So the piece by Forrest Marion is very good as well, and I think it you know hammers this. In, these people that are investigating VMI aren't really that independent. They have a preconceived notion as to what they're going to do before they even get there and what they're going to find. If you want to look for it, you're going to find it. Even if it's not there, you're still going to find it because this is what you're doing. This is what historians, the Marxist historians, often do. Well, I'm going to find something to fit my worldview. Even if it doesn't exist, I'm going to find something to fit that. So I really like that piece, too. And then, of course, we had the piece by Tom DiLorenzo, The Last Insurrection According to the Political Establishment. And this gets into the war. And you want to talk about abusing power and abusing the Constitution. Just look at what the Republicans were doing during the war. Republicans like William Tecumseh Sherman, who the neocons love. Look, there's anybody, when I mention some of these other Southern heroes, war leaders heroes in the army. Notice I didn't mention William Tecumseh Sherman because the man is a terrorist. I mean, frankly, he was. He would have been prosecuted for war crimes had this taken place in the 1940s. 
He would have been at Nuremberg and would have been put before a judge, a trial, if, of course, the North lost. But he would have been, because look at what happened in the South during this particular period of time and the language and other things. These people were forfeit. Southerners were forfeit by that particular time. didn't matter if you burned down their cities. Of course, next week we're going to have a piece on the burning of Columbia, South Carolina, but it didn't matter if you burned down their cities. These people were irrelevant. It didn't matter if I mean, they're there to save, supposedly save, uh, slaves from from uh, from the horrible institution, but I mean they're treating these people like they're just animals. That's the Union, not Southerners. That's the Union. So this particular piece, and I know I had some we I had somebody email me that um, didn't like the first part of it because uh, it was critical of the actions of the modern Democrats and going after Trump. And I know there's a lot of people that listen to this particular podcast and read our website that are not fans of Trump. And look, frankly, neither am I in terms of his abuse of power because he did it. And he was, I mean, Trump was all over the place. He was a real problem. But really what's, what we're seeing in Washington now, it's, it's political theater. The, I, the, the whole goal of it is to paint the other side as terrorists and awful people, the deplorables, and to present a situation through fear that if you vote for a Republican, well, you're voting for terrorists. It's the same thing that was going on in the period after the war. It was just the Republicans saying that about the Democrats. I mean, this is all politics. It's all for political gain, and it's all for power. Again, we go back to what Randolph and Calhoun, particularly Calhoun, was saying about politics. It's all about how you can game the system to get an upper hand on your political opponent so you can gain power. So you can use power to your advantage and you can crush the opposition. That's the problem. That's the issue. And that's where all of these things work together. And all of it's in the name of the of unity. There's no unity with this. It's about their culture, the imperialism of their side. Take our liberty and democracy and like it or you die. That's the issue. Now, the other two pieces we had this week, which I think were, were very good, uh, we had a piece by Casey Chalk, the Hillbilly Thomists, and I... I love this because this is kind of a light. We do light things. We get all this very serious stuff. Then we have something like this. And the piece on Friday is the same way. Because this is really about culture. This, you know, The Abbeville Institute is more than just uh, the discussion of all these heavy issues. But this is a, a piece on a bunch of Catholic uh, priests who are... Uh, <laughs> who are playing bluegrass music. The Hillbilly Thomas is the name of the band. And Casey Chalk actually went out and interviewed them and said, hey, look, um, why are you doing this? Well, a lot of these guys are from the South, and they wanted to produce the music from their place, the South, with a Catholic spin to it. But not just that. He actually says they, they give a nod to their to the Protestant side of bluegrass, which, I mean, look, one of the reasons why you had bluegrass music was because of Christian hymns, and you find a lot of that in bluegrass music. There's a lot of hymns in bluegrass, and one of our great scholars, uh, Alan Harrelson, 
I mean, his father and both Alan and his father are tremendous bluegrass musicians. I mean, Alan is a fantastic banjo player, banjo picker. He's great. And his father, grandfather, I mean, all these people were writing these songs, and Alan's grandfather, I believe it was his grandfather, wrote several hymns that people play all over the United States in bluegrass festivals and other things. I mean, so bluegrass music was a way for these rural congregations of people in various denominations to reach the masses, reach the flock, because people like music. And for a long time, a lot of people don't realize, but the only way you'd ever hear music is if you went to church. I mean, this is why when you go back into the 16th and 17th centuries, 18th centuries, before you really start seeing the rise of popular music, but certainly into the medieval period and then moving forward into the early Renaissance and then late Renaissance, most of it was, most of your music, or actually all of your music for the most part, was church music. People wrote hymns. And they wrote music for church because when you went to church, this is what you did, and this is how you sang it. You, you had that kind of music if there was a hymn. And, of course, one of the most popular things in the United States uh, for a long time were the, were the hymnals that were produced, more, most importantly by people like singing Billy Walker and uh, Benjamin Franklin White. which came out of the South. I mean, look, Amazing Grace, the melody we know to Amazing Grace is written by singing Billy Walker out of South Carolina. It's the most popular song in the world. The most popular song in the world is that particular tune because anywhere you go that there are Christians and there are Christians all over the world, they're going to know Amazing Grace and they're going to know that melody. They're not going to know the other melodies to it. They're going to know that melody. And that was written by a Southerner. And so the Southern tradition is so important for our understanding of American culture. It's just, it's marvelous. And I think that's the part, you know, everyone, a lot of people are introduced to the Southern culture through politics. Well, Thomas Jefferson said this in the Kentucky Resolutions, or we had, uh, you know, people thinking about opposing the general government for this way or that way, or we had these great Southern political leaders the Constitution, the Declaration, I mean, all these things were introduced that way. But then when you start to get deeper and you start to really think about what the South is, there wouldn't have been any of that without the culture that produced it. For a long time, I was not a cultural historian. I didn't like it. I didn't like cultural history. You know, when you have pages and pages about some little minutia of something, you know, it's a, uh, you know, a story of, you know, some farm implement or some little tradition somewhere. I didn't find that stuff very interesting. It's too kind of National Geographic for me. Getting, I, mean, I wanted to talk about politics. But then as I started getting into it, and I started realizing how you can't have the politics without the culture. I mean, this is something that Americans can't understand. For example, if they want to force our political system on Iraq, right? Well, it's kind of hard to do because the people of Iraq have their own political culture that's, that's developed over thousands of years, their own political culture. Or if you want to force American institutions on China, that's going to be very hard to do. They have a very old civilization with their own political culture. You can't really do it unless there's a wholesale acceptance of it by the people themselves. And this is hard to do. So uh, Southern culture and Southern political culture is certainly a part of it, but there's also a Northern political culture, which is something different. 
in its own way. And w these two are antagonistic a lot of times. So why would you have a union of these things? Well, because if everyone compromised and everyone just said we're going to have a union that does these specific things and nothing else, we don't have to worry about that problem. That's not what happened overall. But culture matters, and that culture produces something else, is my whole point in all this. And this is why I like this particular piece on bluegrass, because it that culture produced these priests, to want, made them want to produce this bluegrass music. And I find that very fun. And the, the music's okay. I mean, look, it's not the best bluegrass you're ever going to hear, but it's an interesting spin on a Southern institution, which is music. And then finally, just briefly mention the piece on Friday by Bo Trawick. It's a, a discussion of you know his time as a riding the rails as a young man to New Orleans and, and being in the military and uh, you know the, the the freedom that that had. But then of course it's a critique on industrial life and the, and the buzz of industrial life in many ways of modern society and the modern New South. And I like that. I mean, it's an interesting piece. He's a great writer. Um, and I, I think you'll find it interesting if you haven't read it. It's just a little story. It's basically Southern literature, and it's a good it's a good story, good little short story to finish off the week. It's called Fast Money, and of course the shysters and other people who are in <laughs> making fast money and what that means. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed this week at the Abbey of Institute. Until next time. Yeah.